Are you ready? Next Naughty Podcast. <laughs> yes, that's what it is, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, what's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of The Next 90 with Nick. I am your host, Nick, and this is The Next 90. This is the podcast dedicated to leveling up your life 90 days at a time. But I don't always want you to take it from me because after a while, I just sound like won't, won't, won't Charlie Brown's teacher. Today, I'm excited. I've got an amazing guest in the studio. Uh, he is a fellow warrior brother, but on top of that, he is a graduate of Harvard University. He is a philanthropist. He is an investor. He is in the tech business. He has had over $3 billion in exits of companies that he's either invested in, founded, or been a part of. Welcome to the Next 90 Studios, Mr. Naveen Takaram. What's up, brother? Great to be here, Nick. Yeah, dude, that was like a... That was a pretty fucking good intro. That was a good intro. Should I be like your with, your hype man from was, you know from here on out? That was pretty good with no notes, my friend. I know, pretty pretty damn good. Well, when you spend a lot of time as we do with our quote unquote brothers, you you get to know them pretty well, so you don't need notes. Extremely well. Thanks for putting me up last night. Yeah, man. How'd you like the casita? I did like it. it was a little cozy up there. It was very cozy and warm. I know it's no Valhalla, but it's uh, it works. It works. Yeah. So Naveen is a, is a warrior brother of mine and, uh, him and I are working on a pretty fun project, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but I want to, um, want to rewind the clock a little bit as I always do. Cause you got a great story. Um, Naveen's a professional speaker. He's a, uh, an angel investor. He's on the board of directors of multiple companies. Um, just genuine good guy. And, uh, I want to kind of start like from the beginning, um, I've always been fascinated. I've heard this story multiple times, but if you'll humor me and uh, tell it to my audience one more time, like you didn't come from money. In fact, quite the, uh, quite the contrary. Can we start with the motorcycle? That'll be the, the cue for you because I know you know this story so intimately. I've told this story a couple of times, but <laughs> I think that your audience might enjoy it. Well, you know, I didn't start out like this. When I was born, my parents lived in an apartment that I think the rent was less than $200 a month. It was definitely not a house. I think it was a two bedroom, which for 200 bucks a month, it's a pretty bad apartment or a pretty good deal. One or the other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is all built um, from that point. But my parents aren't from the US, they're from India. And when my dad graduated college, which just getting into college was a big deal back then. Yeah, I can imagine. It wasn't like there was a lot of opportunity in India in that time. Now it's a growth country, but not back in the late 60s. When my dad graduated from India, he got a job, which again, was a huge deal to get a job in an underdeveloped country like that. But he never really wanted to have a normal job. He always wanted to have his own business, his own company, maybe in the US or Europe. But back in those days, it was impossible to leave. I, I got to imagine that's got to be a pretty lofty dream. I mean, it's a lofty dream by any stretch of the imaginations, but especially in India at that time, like are there a whole ton of people just killing it as entrepreneurs in India? No, it was a very, very poor country, as right. we know. So um, there's a big, big gap and big divide between the haves and the have-nots. Massive gap. Incredible gap. Insurmountable gap. So, so your father's a dreamer. He was uh, not a dreamer in the way people are talking about it now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he he had big dreams. So he he wanted to start his own business, which even today in the U.S. is, people, is hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when he got this job, he was happy he got it, but... He wanted to start his own company. So it was a manufacturing company. My dad graduated as an engineer from college. So one day he's walking around the floor of this factory of the manufacturing 
company works at and he sees this big machine that's not doing anything. It's broken. Now, why would you even notice a broken machine on the factory floor? Well, because my dad was so focused on his outcome of leaving India, he got an idea. So he looks at the machine a second time and he notices there's an address on the machine with this nameplate that has some funny address in this place called Denmark. Yeah, I mean, in Denmark couldn't be like completely different than India, right? Yeah, or, it or could, farther away. It might have been on a different. It might as well have been, been on, on a different, different planet. Yeah. Um, and who knows if he even knew where Denmark was at the time? Probably not. But he gets this idea, and he decides to write the company in Denmark and basically say, "Hey, look, your machine's here in India. It's broken. You really should teach me how to use it." So what language is he writing in? Because he's in India, writing to somebody in, in Denmark. Is he using English as the common like denominator there? Well, fortunately, both those company, the, in both those countries, a lot of people speak English. So yeah, he's, okay. he's writing in English too. But he's uh, well-educated enough to even just pull that off. In South India, actually, people speak pretty good English now. Do they really? Yeah, because the, uh, the national language there, I mean, it's not, people don't speak Hindi there. Right. They speak Tamil, which is a local language, and, or other dialects, and they speak English. English. Got it. So, so, he, so he writes this company in Denmark. He's a he's a guy in, in, in India. He's a random guy in India writing in a company. A, in a shop, and he sees this machine. Exactly. And he writes a company in Denmark and basically tries to guilt trip them to say, hey, look, you have a broken machine. India's a poor country. You should teach me how to use it. And so he writes the letter off, never expecting a reply. But about a month later, he gets a funny-looking envelope back in the mail with some address from this place called Denmark. And so he opens up the envelope and it says, you know, yes, we will actually teach you how to use this machine, which is pretty amazing that they actually wrote back. And two, they'll actually pay him something like maybe a hundred bucks a month while he's in Denmark. But he has to get to Denmark in order to get this done. But they're not going to pay for his plane ticket, which for all of us listening, that's not that big a deal. You yeah, can just book a plane ticket. Just buy a plane ticket. But for him, who knows if there was foreign exchange or what the exchange rate was between India and Denmark. And he had no money. He just got out of school. So he didn't have money for a plane ticket. It could have been a year's salary or could have been some even higher number. Who knows? So it was a nice try, but it was really a no. Yeah. But my dad is pretty entrepreneurial or risk-taking even amongst other innovative folks. And so he decides to do something that I think most of us would think is crazy. He, well, one, he sells his motorcycle. Which was like his prized possession, right? Which is all he had. And besides, if you know in those countries, whether it's India or Africa or China, developing countries, you need a way to get around. Right. Right. And you- A motor, way you, a motor transportation is everything. Right. You're not taking cabs around. So no. you need a bike or a motorcycle or a scooter or something like that to get from A to B. So he sells his motorcycle, which is all he had. And then he borrows a bunch of money from a family friend. So now he's in debt. And then he liquidates his dad's entire life savings just to buy a one-way ticket to Denmark. Wow. A one-way. One-way, because of course a round trip would be more so expensive. So he, he has to sell the motorcycle, he has to borrow money, and then take part of his, his father's life savings. Yes. But he, he was, like, did he have a vision for, for what was going to happen? Or he just knew that this was kind of an opportunity for the way out? He just knew that he may never have an opportunity to leave the country again. So he it's decided incredible. to go for it. But what he didn't tell his family and friends is that he did not have a job in Denmark. 
he only had a 90-day work permit. So mm. after 90 days, he would be deported back to India with no job, no life savings, and no motorcycle. And being in debt. Yes, and being in debt. So it was a huge, huge risk. But he figured, you know, I'll figure it out when I get to Denmark, wherever this place Denmark is. So he gets, so he, obviously he goes. He goes to Denmark and he works there. And after 90 days, he convinces the owner of the company to let him start a drafting division to make blueprints. Because remember, this is not that far after World War II. Mm. And this particular company, apparently that there was some German firm doing all their blueprint and drafting for him. So he basically said, hey, do you really want the Germans to do this, you know, this drafting for you? And of course, the answer is no. He's like, yeah, sure, you can start a drafting or blueprint division for the company. So, so he gets to stay in Denmark for longer than the, the 90 days. Exactly. So then they hired him full time. He stayed for another year, um, gained some more skills, then actually went to Germany to work in Germany for another year and from Germany to Canada, from Canada to the U.S. So, so he never went back. He never, no, he never went back. So my that, parents, that, that one-way ticket was a true one-way ticket. My parents still live outside Chicago. Wow. That's incredible. Like, I mean, to have that foresight, to have that vision, like, hey, this is my this is my way out, and to just be willing to put the risk on the table and go all in, I think that's what a lot of people lack in this entrepreneurial spirit, is that, like, when you're convicted in the, the why, the mm-hmm. how, the how kind of, like, figures itself out. I know it sounds stupid, but you just figure out a way. I'll get there. I'll figure it out. He got to 90 days. He figured it out. He got to a year. And then it's like that year went to Germany, to Canada, to the United States. Was his ultimate goal to be in the United States? It was a goal, but of course you have to be flexible. Right. Right. Because getting from India to Denmark to Germany is pretty awesome as it is. <laughs> right. And then after that point, he had some experience. So he had different options. He could have gone to Italy or England or different places, but ultimately the U.S. is what called. Wow. And so you were born in Chicago. I was born actually in a place called Racine, Wisconsin. Oh, nice. Which is about 45 minutes Racine, north of Chicago. Were your parents like on a fucking road trip and they got lost? How'd you end up in Racine, Wisconsin? So, uh, as you may know, uh, Canada and Wisconsin are not that far apart. Right. So my parents moved south from Canada, Windsor, Ontario, to Racine, Wisconsin, where my dad got a job. Got it. So uh, that's where they were living when I was born. And that's when the first place I ever lived was this two-bedroom apartment in Racine, Wisconsin. That's crazy. The, the one that was under $200 a month. Yes. Well, it makes sense now that it was under $200 a month because it was Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, I don't, I've don't. i never seen Racine, Wisconsin, even on a map. Have you been back? Oh, yeah. Many, many times. Is it lovely? It's a lovely place. Yeah. To all my listeners in Racine, Wisconsin. I'm sure you have a huge fan base there, <laughs> Big, Dick. Big shout out. We're getting fucking tons of downloads today from Racine, Wisconsin. All right. So then, you, so you did you spend most of your time in Wisconsin or did you go to move to Chicago as well? We moved to Chicago area, uh, Northbrook, Illinois. Okay. When I was about three years old. So three years. Um, and did you have like a, a normal childhood? <laughs> you know, um, I always tell people like, I, I knew we weren't poor, but. Like, I didn't know that we weren't rich, you know, until like I got older, you know, we always had new clothes and the bike and the Nintendos and all that kind of stuff. But like, I didn't know that we lived in a very, very like middle class neighborhood, lower middle class neighborhood. Well, I grew up in a pretty modest house in Northbrook, Illinois, but that's because it's become a pretty uh, affluent area over, Has it really? I guess, the decades. Really? But um, Northbrook, Glenview, Skokie, that that sort of area of North Shore, Chicago. Okay. Um, 
So I didn't really think that much about it, to be honest, because I was just cranking on math homework all day. Were you a good student? I like, was a good student. Yeah. So Did you like school? I never really had the chance to think about that. Really? My parents were always like, you got to do well in school. So I did well in school. Mm-hmm. I just certainly did not like school. I liked school well enough. Now in high school, were any athletics involved or were you just... I was of, a golfer. You're a golfer. Yeah. It's a great sport. It is a great sport. A lot of precision and skill. That would make sense for you. A lot of precision and skill and patience and calculations and the right the right instrument to get to where you want to go. That's a great sport. Well, since my dad was in business, he thought that at least at those times, the 80s is like the heyday of golf, yeah, right? Yeah, that's 80s where a lot, of, a lot of deals were done. Right, exactly. So he said, well, I got to learn how to play golf. So he literally, he learned how to play golf out of, out of nowhere because he said, this is what I have to do to be um, on the golf course doing business. business. Yeah. So I learned to go play golf when I was very young. Wow. So I played all the way um, through high school. I was the captain of the Glenbrook North High School golf team, which is, of course, one of the most honorable titles you can have. That's absolutely. What was the mascot? We were the Glenbrook North Spartans. The Spartan. The Spartan golf team. Exactly. Kind of has a nice ring to it. It's I like, know. It seems like you just go out there and be bashing people. I can see your fear as you say <laughs> I, that. I'm shaking. I'm trembling at your nine iron. I was also on the math team. That's so a, That's also honorable. Which is helpful to calculate your golf score yeah. without a calculator. <laughs> there you go. I mean, if you, you can kind of, if you can't do it on one hand. You're probably not a very good golfer. Probably not a very good golfer. So after high school, um, I know the story, but you uh, you went to Harvard. I went to Princeton for my undergrad, actually. Well, excuse me. I want to just be accurate. So yes, Princeton. Sorry. I went to. Uh, He's Princeton. actually wearing a cardigan <laughs> as, he, as he said that. Yeah, Princeton is a pretty. Um, I don't know what the right word is, but I guess it's a fairly elite school. Yeah, you want to know a fun fact? Let's hear it. And you're gonna fucking die. How, how old are you? Forty-three. 43. Okay. Well, maybe our our paths would have crossed, but maybe not. I had an opportunity to go to Princeton on a wrestling scholarship and I didn't go because it was too far from home. That's about one of the most cracked up things I've ever heard in my entire life. Isn't that fucked up? That is, that is just straight up moronic. I know. I mean, but that's a young kid that just doesn't know anything that was living. How old are you? I'm 39. So we would, I would have been like a freshman when you were a You probably would have been on the wrestling team with my friend tim ferris tim ferris was on the wrestling team he was like a master of all ninja sports no way yeah i'm pretty sure he's on a wrestling team i think that wrestling uh prince at the time that was like what's a title nine yeah so there was like Th- that's the, yeah the, there the, was some there stuff were, going on and that's why it opened up this uh this window and right. guess guess where i went to i don't know where you went the illustrious san francisco state a fine school as well. A fine school as well. No, no, no doubt. And that actually, is un, that's actually unbelievable. All right. Cause we would have overlapped. I, I think. know. But the crazy part is like, who fucking knows? Cause our lives are, I think pro- you're doing pretty well. Nick. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't knock it. So anyway, so you go to Princeton first. Uh, I go to Princeton. Were you, were you friends with Tim Ferriss at Princeton at the time? Um, no, when I got there, I was friends with him. Uh, no, but when, when you, you met, you met Tim Ferriss in Prince at Princeton. We met there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of good people there. So then after Princeton comes Harvard for your, your MBA. So yeah, so I played uh, played some golf at Princeton too. That, I think that's how I got in. I mean, I had pretty good grades. I was like a very high-end student, but I wasn't number one in my class. And so you played golf at Princeton? I played golf at Princeton, which is division one. Nice. So for, uh, quit my final year to get my stuff together and get a job. Yeah. So I got a job on Wall Street, 
right after, after Princeton. And then went to Harvard to get your MBA. Exactly. So I spent um, a couple years on Wall Street investment banking, a couple years in private equity investing, which is an extremely standard path. How old are you now at this time? Like 21, 22? <clears throat> yeah, I graduated when I was 21. Wow. So then I went back to business school when I was like 25, 26. Work, like working probably super long hours. Oh, yeah. Right? I, I sort of like over, I sort of like missed like a major part of the story, which is that Wall Street is, is, is very intense. Mm. It is not like Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> it is nothing like that. It's not even like the Wait, movie. You're not throwing midgets and shaving people's heads and I mean, drinking martinis at lunch? That's not actually even Wall Street. I think he started out somewhere he, in no, like he, Jersey yeah, or he was somewhere. In Jersey, like yeah. That's like sort of Boiler Room. No, that, watch, the actual movie, The Boiler Room, was, was based upon the Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. 100%. Like the JT Marlin was like 100% based on uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. They just couldn't call it that because of licensing this type of stuff. Yeah, no one would. No one on Wall Street would ever dream of calling whatever they were doing Wall Street. Right. But um, it gives you a sense of the uh, sort of level of cutthroat mm. that is true. You know, even in the most white shoe firms like Goldman or Morgan. Right. Like they're as competitive or more on Wall Street. Yeah. But whatever those guys are doing, I'm not sure. So was <laughs> what it, they were doing? Was it like just like coffee drinking? You know, uh, long hours all day every day. You're basically cranking from. 9, 9.30, because you get in a little bit late because you're up till 12, 1, 2 in the morning. I remember, I can give you one story that sort of encompasses um, how long people worked, which is that there was a two-month period. It's hard to even believe this is true. There was a two-month period where I didn't go to bed any night, seven nights a week before 2 or 3 in the morning. No way. And I specifically remember looking in the mirror one morning and not looking very good. And I said to myself, I have to remember this because one day I'm not going to believe this is true. And had I not said that to myself at that moment, I would not remember it. Because even now I'm like, was it a month or was it two months? But it was like, now I actually don't, to be honest, I knew this like two years ago. I don't remember if it was two or three months, but I know it was two or three in the morning. Because Two or three in the morning and then getting up. Seven days a week. And you get up at like, you get up as late as you can, like, you know. 839, which actually sounds like six hours of sleep, not that bad. By the time you eat and like, no, man, like brush your teeth, fall asleep. But by the way, I said the earliest I went to bed was two or three. Yeah, Some days you don't sleep at all. So you never catch up. And what, what the hell are you doing that whole time? Dude? You're just cranking on spreadsheets, cranking on presentations, cranking on research, reading stuff. And is the money like reciprocal? On a per hour basis, you're making like a dollar twenty-five an hour, I would say. <laughs> Maybe a dollar fifty one. So you actually were making less money than your father was in India on a per hour basis. <laughs> yes. I mean, I never actually calculated that, but it was certainly like approaching minimum wage. Are you like a, on a salary? I'm assuming. Yeah, you're on a salary plus bonus, but you're there for the experience, right? Um, you're there for experience, and they know that. And I think the biggest thing I learned is the ability to perform at a high level hmm. with very limited, you know, intellectual resources because so, you got to be checking stuff to the tenth decimal very complicated analysis when you haven't slept in days. But all that math, you know, prepared you for that. In theory. Yeah, well, looking back, like fond memories or was it like, holy shit? Looking back, I would never want to do it again, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Which seems like a lot of things in life are that way. So I want to I pause real quick because I, I have this whole idea that I've, I've been thinking about, this whole idea of power of association. Um, and you know how you got get into these new networks of people, which broadens your belief system, your uh, your mindset, and you know. So, do you believe that 
Harvard, Princeton, you know, being able to meet guys like Tim Ferriss before they were the quote unquote Tim Ferriss. Do you think that helped amplify your, your present day success? A thousand percent. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you'd say that. Tim's a buddy, but there are, you know, I can think of a hundred other folks I'm, I'm sure that like I'm, him that are not in the public eye that are, you know, equally or more as important to my six, more important to my success than, than that one example. But he's a good example. No, I'm just saying like, yeah, he knows the name. So like, do they give you permission, like being in that kind of group to, to think bigger, do more? I'll give you an example. Like I was a little burned out after high school because I was cranking since I was from kindergarten through senior year mm-hmm. to get into Princeton. So when I got there, it seemed like I had accomplished like had my a, life goal. Um, and so I didn't do well my first couple of years. I had like a 3.0, which is not ter- which is not terrible looking back, but I really could not muster the energy. Up to- I was done, done my freshman year. <clears throat> so I'm going into junior year with not a very high GPA, maybe like, I don't know what it was, over three, between three and three, five. And that affects your ability to get into- Get a job. Oh, get a job. Yeah. They ask about your fucking GPA, <clears throat> Of course. Huh? Wow. Yeah, that's the only way they can differentiate. So I had this roommate named Andrew Wright, who's still a good friend of mine. And I remember one time he walks into the room, he's like, dude, you dress like shit. And this guy literally wore- polo all the time he's like the he was like a standard sponsored by ralph loren yeah basically um you know played the cross like that's played like all these sports that's like the quintessential ivy league guy totally he was I like go to princeton and play lacrosse and wear ralph he loren. was he was a very upstanding citizen so he had like a 4-0 or you know he was like the perfect student yeah and i was like you know love the guy i'm like screw this guy i can i can buy a polo shirt whatever you know and he always went to class, which I never did. Mm. So I started to go into class as well. And so my second semester, I think that year, that year I had a 4.0. Wow. Because I was roommates with him. Because I, I was like, I'm going to just follow what he does. Accountability, association. Accountability, association, yeah. everything. And yeah. it was not, I didn't read a book. It was just like, I was. we were living together. Right. So I, we were the same major as well. So I just did what he did. Right. And I got a 4.0. That's fucking I awesome. I mean, that literally what was what happened. And I started dressing with khakis and polo too, which... <laughs> was a negative benefit, but you know, I, I got to see some pictures. It's a small price to pay. I got to gotta see some pictures. Oh man. So, okay. So then uh, Princeton, Harvard, uh, you know, get the M- MBA. Princeton and Wall Street. Wall Street. Finance. And then Harvard. Then Harvard Business School. And then what happens after Harvard Business School? <clears throat> so Harvard Business School, I graduate in 2003, which as you may remember. What the fuck was that like, by the way? Harvard <laughs> Business School. Yeah, I guess we skipped over that. Harvard Business School is an amazing place. Yeah. It's truly an amazing place. There are some very sharp people there. Um, is it cutthroat or is it is it so is it collaboration? Is it I didn't find it cutthroat at all. Hmm. Um we actually didn't have you were not allowed to disclose your grades, and grades were a one, two, or a three. So top ten percent got a one, bottom ten percent got a three. Everybody else got, got a, two. a two. And I'd I had a, actually a perfect GPA at Harvard. I had exactly a two point out of whatever it was. <laughs> There's no, there's no GPA, but I got one, one, and I got a one, three, and at everything twos for every single class. Really? That's it. Yeah. So I thought that was the ideal level of effort to get out of Harvard <laughs> because I knew that that was my two year vacation. Right. After that, it was going to be go time for maybe forever. Yeah. So I took the, I took the opportunity to uh, have so, as much and, fun and, as possible. And so you should, man. You've been fucking grinding your whole life. And like, I mean, I, I could care less if my kids go to college. Uh, from from an academia, you know, standpoint, but I want them to go to have that experience and just to be a kid and like like have fun, you know, because like right now life is heavy, building businesses and 
startups and investing and all that kind of shit. It, it's taxing. Like I would love to just have hit the pause button and just enjoyed college. I was always like trying to hustle, you know? Mm-hmm. You are a hustler, my man. I'm a hustler, baby. Uh, okay. So, uh, so you go to ha- get your MBA at Harvard. Um, it's a little bit of a vacation, but not cause it's Harvard. Um, well, we graduated in 2003. And that so, was like right at the post dot com boom, and then mortgage uh, dot com bust, and the mortgage boom. <coughs> well, it was even worse. It was after nine eleven, as you may remember. <coughs> That's right. And it was the end of the dot com boom. So the market crashed. I think April two thousand one, yeah. if I recall correctly. And there was no jobs in finance two thousand three, because any job these companies don't hire very many people. So. Any jobs that were available were taken in 2002. Mm. They don't need to hire another person. Right. Very small partnerships, right? Right. So I'm sitting there. I probably had 100 or more interviews. And, you know, I'd barely get back by the first round. Because, one, they're probably just there. They're not even hiring. They just want to see you as round. And, two, there's so much competition from Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, all those business schools for very, very few jobs. And they're like, you got a 2.0? GPA. See, the good thing is you didn't have to disclose your GPA. You just had a degree. You're like, Harvard, bitch. Uh, that's not the words I use, but basically that's what yeah. you would do. Um, that's what I would have used. That's probably a smart way to go. So we're going towards graduation. I think we were three days before graduation, and I still don't have a job. So everyone has, it felt like everyone had a job, which I think is actually true, except me and like maybe a handful of other folks. Um, so I ultimately had two opportunities, which I got pretty much at graduation, just coincidentally. One was to go back to New York to work for a big investment bank in their private equity group, um, Goldman Sachs. So that was one opportunity. The other one was a lot crazier. It was to go out to Seattle to help start a private equity fund for Paul Allen, the founder of Microsoft. Mm. So, and the funny thing is the reason... I was totally set to go back to New York because all my friends were going there, et cetera. But then when I went for one of the final round interviews at Goldman, um, everyone was sitting in these cubes, like these really like low budget cubes, right? These like plastic cubes. So you're sitting there with all like whoever's there, like the other analysts, secretaries, and it's like noisy. It's not like a bullpen, but it's like a proper office. It's not what I envisioned of Goldman. It was not, it was not in any way glamorous. And what really bothered me was the cubes did not cover your head. So you're like so a little gopher, gopher like, out of the hole? You're like a gopher out of the hole. And I'm like, I can't sit here for four years because that's how long you'd be there. Wow. You'd be there for four years till, in theory, you got promoted to vice president, you got an office. I'm like, there is no way I can sit my ass here for four years. Um, I mean, so I'd it, like to say it was like some like genius analysis I went out to <laughs> Seattle work for Vulcan. Your, 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 uh, your unit for decision making was like, Low rising cubes versus <laughs> exactly. I have my own office. I mean, to to be, I have to be honest. I mean, they were paying me like fifty percent more to go to Seattle. But honestly, really, I would have taken that terrible. I would have taken the uh, much lower pay for the brand name. That's what you did <laughs> when you were are in a risk averse environment That's like two thousand three. But I couldn't deal with the cubes. So I'm like, you know what? I'll take 50% more money and go out to Seattle. I'll take 50% more money and have a hundred percent more cube. A hundred percent. That was, it was way nice. The offices at, at Vulcan were excellent. So that was, so you go to work for, for Paul Allen, which, which in and of itself had been a cool, cool experience. Here you are working with the man who co-founded a company that single-handedly changed the face of the goddamn planet. 
Yes, and that is accurate. Was it all his money or was he pulling in money from other people as well? It was all his money. All his money. So it was basically working for his family office. Got it. Got it. And like that, I mean, what what kind of, are you allowed to talk about how much money was under management or? I mean, I think we, we did publicly talk about that. I think the number at the time was like 10 or 15 billion. I don't remember, but in that, in that ballpark and, and so, we would talk about that. So was your job like to go out and find the, uh, the companies to, to invest in or? Yeah. My job was basically to go identify the opportunities, do the research on the industries, find the management teams, partner with the management teams, and then go do the deal to either create a company, but that was more atypical and more likely you would go invest buy a company alongside a management team. And uh, Paul would put in all the equity capital. We would raise debt, just like any standard leverage buyout. And then you would own the company, you would control the board and control the destiny of the company. And you would be relying on your management team to run the company for you. This actually sounds like a, a dream come true. Like, I mean, I've done so many goddamn startups that uh, it's it's been like painstaking. And some have, have failed and a lot have succeeded, including my current businesses. And uh, like to be able to go and look at businesses that need capital and like, you know, you're just trying to help a good company get to, to great. I mean, that had to be pretty rewarding. Well, it's great to have be able to write, you know, massive checks Yeah. as, um, of course, we had an investment committee, there was a process and all that stuff, but had the ability to go write, you know, a couple hundred million dollar check is pretty amazing. Change these people's lives. Yeah. It was about, you know, a lot of the companies grew employee based by thousands of people over the course of our ownership. That's so crazy. there was a lot of impact there. And then you guys had, were, were you guys buy and hold or you buy and sell or? Eventually any investor has to sell, yeah. but we were very long-term holders because we were investing for Paul and he's an individual. So he's going to, he unfortunately just passed away, but he obviously lived a long time. So mm-hmm. he, you don't want to sell the company in three years. You want right. to compound returns on any good investment as long as you can defer taxes, right? Yeah. yeah. The hardest thing is finding the good companies. Once you find a good company, you want to hold on to it, you know, in theory, as long as possible, kind of like the way Buffett does. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's exciting. And so I want to touch real quick before we, uh, before we change gears here <clears throat> is that, you went to war with uh, with Paul, right? We had a uh, a little difference of opinion at the end of um, <laughs> your my tenure there. Yes, and so you had two opportunities: kind of tuck your tail and and just accept what was what was served up to you, or fight for what you knew was was right. Yeah, so I would say, in summary, working for Paul was a great experience. From an exposure, we generated well over two billion dollars of profit not like paper profit, like cash profit. That's, that's billion with a B, people. That's billion. That is billion with a B. Can't count um, that on one of your golf hands. No, that took a calculator. Yeah. But uh, so we did really well for Paul. I felt like we did all the right things for him. But unfortunately, um, at the end of the day, Vulcan Paul's company and I got sideways and basically they fired me and tried not to pay me a big chunk of what they owed me. So I had a choice. I could either just try to start over and just swallow that, which is a hard pill to swallow. Uh, or I could go and fight a massive legal battle against someone who is, I don't know, the third or fourth richest man in yeah, the world. Yeah, one of the richest people in the entire world, the history of the world. The history of the world, yeah. And so you went and you fought. I did. I just decided that, you know, you have to live and stand by some principles. Mm. And even despite the fact that we're dealing with a multi-multi-multi-billionaire I believed in the U.S. legal system that if we had the right evidence and 
made the right arguments that we could win a case even against right. Paul Allen. So you can do what's easy, as I say to the listeners, or you can do what's right. Like the easy thing would be just like, okay, well, I made some money. This is a cool experience. I'm never going to win and have this mindset of like, mm, whatever, not whatever, but just like, it's not going to work. Or you do what's fucking right and you fight. And how long did you fight? It was a four year battle. How many times do you want to give up? <clears throat> Actually never. Oh, good. Now, if I focused on that, like in terms of the opposite side of the coin, you'd want to give up before you started. Right. But I knew it was the right thing to do. And you were all in. I was all in, 100% all in. It was an 80 hour a week job for a year. Wow. Finding the initial lawsuit. That's when you do most of the work. <clears throat> and then it gets appealed and appealed and appealed and appealed. And they just milk you for more and more legal fees. So I actually had to put everything I'd ever made in my entire life, including all the money I'd made at Vulcan at risk just to fight this lawsuit. So had I lost, I literally would have gone back to zero dollars in my bank account. Would you go back back to Wisconsin? Uh, no, oh, but yeah. uh, I probably would have to figure out something else to do. <laughs> but so, the, I would have, I would have, you know, lost. I don't even want to think about how many millions of dollars yeah. I would have lost. Yeah. And, and ultimately you won. Ultimately, we won. It changed the course of, of certainly uh, your life. It did because it enabled me to be an angel investor with my own money and really never have to work for anyone else ever again. Beautiful. And I mean, I think that's what the, the whole quote unquote American dream is. So I love this. I love that your father starts out with this vision and a one way ticket. Like there is no other option. I just see my window and this is the only option. He goes. He ends up in Denmark of all the unlikely places and then eventually to Germany and Canada and then some, what's it, Rinsky, Wisconsin? Do not disrespect Racine, Wisconsin. Racine, Racine, Wisconsin. You all fancy in California and over you, here. You have this option. And so all these decisions and you're essentially you're, you have a one-way ticket with this lawsuit. Like it's a one-way ticket. You're either arriving at your destination. Or you're definitely not. Or you're getting deported and you're going to be freaking broke. Not deported out of the country, but just deported from your lifestyle and everything like that. Well, especially so, this is in 2009. Yeah. What did your father say? Well, he thought that I should definitely fight fight the lawsuit. But Hell yes. obviously as a, you know, you could, can't, you could never advise anyone on good conscience to fight that lawsuit. No. Right. So he wasn't like, you should definitely fight it, but he was like, he obviously understood that had to fight that. I mean, it, was pre it got pretty ugly. You know, they published an article in the Wall Street Journal that did not, was not accurate. Try to, you know, I wouldn't accuse anyone of trying to slander me, but it certainly looked that way. Yeah. Um, and it was 2009, 2010. So there were no jobs anyway. So someone's trying to prevent me from getting a job. Don't worry. There were no jobs <laughs> out there. So it was, it was a tough situation because it wasn't like you could just go find another job at the time. Yeah, right. Right. So you had to, on top of having a tough job market, you, I also had to fight this lawsuit. That's so, so crazy. it was, a, it was a rough, uh, it was a rough couple of years. Damn. So, so he wins, he becomes an angel investor. Um, start, start your own company and, uh, called quickie. Um, well, I didn't start quickie. I started a investment firm called NT capital partners, which okay. I never would have thought 10 years later, we'd, we'd still be, uh, Still, still be, be going and doing extremely well. But uh, my buddy started this company called Quickie, which is basically um, a mobile video company back in the days when, I'm not even sure they were using those two words together, but maybe they were. And basically it was a company that had created an algorithm that could automatically create videos. 
And the benefit of that was that you could take a lot of different types of media types, stitch it together into a video and make that video very cheaply. Mm. And we could apply that technology to, you know, the web, iPad, mobile, and with any type of content. What, what year is this? This is 2010, 2011. Okay. So I invested in the company out of my investment firm, and then he convinced me to join as board member and chief operating officer. So it was a pretty wild ride. It was a big risk because I had a huge reputation already. Right. Um, and I was putting it all on the line to support this small startup. Um, but ultimately, that was a, a good decision. And who would have known we'd be talking about it today, yeah, and you seven go- years later? You can Google that shit. Just Google Yahoo's acquisition of Quickie. Um, but I love the, the story because it has a fairy tale ending. But <clears throat> what people don't see is what happens behind the scenes. And like you guys were literally down to your last, you know, 60 days or 90 days. I forget what it was, but I think it was probably 16 days. It was something <laughs> ridiculously low. We basically, we, um, you know, what I'm teaching at the Innovation Boot Camp yeah. um, on April 30th and May 1st in Malibu, California. Yeah, we're going to promote this. I've never, I never sold anything before. So this is going to be hard. But the, um, well, it's, uh, what we're going to be teaching at the innovation bootcamp is what we didn't do in the first phase of quickie. We created a product and had a sort of build it and they will come attitude. Instead of her finding out what the market wanted and then building that and building the best of your ability. The reality was that people weren't even doing test, learn, evolve. I mean, there's different names for it, but they weren't doing lean startup concepts yeah. back then. Yeah. Otherwise we would have done it. Right. It wasn't like, you know, we weren't at the cutting edge. We were absolutely at the cutting edge. It just wasn't, as ubiquitous. It was, it was develop, deploy, and then decide instead of for like, you know, let's let's deploy a little bit. Let's get to a, you know, an MVP, a minimum viable product, have the market give us the response and then tweak it from there, then deploy and then dedicate the capital to it. Yeah, it sounds crazy. But I mean, Lean Startup was around before then. I'm not sure when the book was written originally, but it was not it was not that common. Yeah. Or not, otherwise, we would have adopted that as well. But sure. somewhere around for our third product, when we basically had burned through 80% of the cash we raised. We raised about $11 million. We burned through, you know, all but a couple million dollars of that cash, had to fire half our team and shut down the products that we had created, including a product that was embedded directly into the Bing search engine. It was, at the time, it was the second most significant integration ever into a search engine. Um, So that was a big deal. But you can imagine Bing's got a lot of traffic because it was costing us money to keep this product up and running sure. in terms of you know um, server time and employee right. salary and things like that. So we had to let go of half our team, which was terrible. And then we had to take all our resources and put it on an iPhone app, a new product that we were hoping would allow people to create videos on their iPhone. This was in a day before Instagram had video. There was no Instagram video on Instagram back then. There was no video on Snapchat. So it was very, very early days in social media. We were all inventing the current world of social media as it came about. Right. And you're so way ahead of your time. But like maybe the market wasn't ready for it. So now you're burning through cash. You guys are down to like days on the clock. We had, yeah, we had, we were measuring cash in weeks and days. That's fucking crazy. And then when we went out to, you know, we had a hit product with this iPhone app. Uh, product, which basically was a competitor to Instagram and Snapchat. So all the big boys started calling us. I mean, it's very obvious where the names are. The Google, Samsung, Facebook, Yahoo, like all these, Apple, all these kind of companies. And it costs a lot of money to start 
going through that process as well. You have to hire advisors. You have a lot of liabilities in terms of like expenses on. Mm-hmm. We had to get our accounting, like all this stuff. You get on deal stuff. We're not mm-hmm. going to talk about deals today, but essentially, what ended up happening is we were running out of money as the deal was trying to go through. Just to just to keep everything like going right. Just to keep. Like them looking up your your skirt, so to speak, checking the books, checking the numbers, like looking at the technology. I mean, you're going, you're talking all that stuff. You're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, more than that, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses. And then on top of that, you got to keep your company alive. So you're burning payroll. the salaries, pay, normal payroll stuff. So when we sold the company to Yahoo, when Yahoo bought Quickie, we literally had zero dollars in the bank. And how much did you sell the company for? Fifty million dollars. Five zero million people. And we had nine full-time employees. Crazy. So it was a very, very... Another one-way ticket, man. It was like there It was is, 100% one-way ticket. There's no other option. Yeah. We were... Instead of taking our foot off the gas, one thing I'll commend our team for is we just ran straight hard, full speed ahead. Full speed ahead. That's what... Got the product launched, invested in the company, invested in, in the product, invested in our remaining team and invested heavily and, in the deal and, process. And that's what you do when you have a one-way ticket, man. Like you just go, there are no other options. Like this, this I didn't know this was gonna be the theme of this one-way ticket, but it started with your father and then started, you know, with <laughs> taking a one-way ticket to Seattle and then a one-way ticket to go against the richest man in the world and then taking your own money, putting a one-way ticket into this startup and joining it and like reputation, money on the line and it all lines up. Exactly. And now <clears throat> he's got another one-way ticket. But it's actually a one-way ticket for all of you that are listening here, and it's called the Innovation Bootcamp. It's something that uh, I'm excited about because I'm I'm sort of behind the scenes collaborating with Naveen on this, developing some of the the, the sales pages and and uh, some of the copy and just collaborating on the how it's all going to work, which is great because he invited me out to his house in Salt Lake City and Park City, uh, Park City Utah. Um, and we just had a, a, a great time. But this is a one-way ticket actually for everybody because innovation itself is a one-way ticket. It never comes back to where it was. That's a great, great metaphor. It never comes back to where it was. The world is always moving forward. Exactly. And today the world is moving faster than ever. Exactly. And there, and the reason for that, as you know, Nick, is that everyone is in the tech business. You are in the tech business. Anyone who's listening to this, you are in the tech business. may not like it, may not believe it. They're listening to this via tech. They're listening to this via tech. Right. That is true. And we're creating this via, via tech. tech. It's going to be in two, posted via tech. In, and, in seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because technology is impacting every facet of the economy, every industry, it's impacting every business. Now, what does that mean? That's nice to say, but what does that mean? It means that trends that in the past might have been linear, like the growth of mobile, the growth of the cloud, the growth of social media, Anything you can think of, anything software-related, robot-related, artificial intelligence-related, that's all technology-driven stuff. And all those trends are impacting industries that typically were not right. in technology. Right. right. If you're in farming now, people are using drones to measure their crops, right? It's crazy. If you're selling used cars, guess what? You're heavily impacted by the mobile phone because right. Uber and Lyft and others are there. And there's going to be self-driving cars, you know, ubiquitous in the future. What's that going to do to your business? Right. Forget about the impact on robots on the manufacturing cars. It's just one example, right? But you can think about 50 different ways technology is impacting every industry. So everybody essentially is in the tech business. Everyone's in the tech business and everything's moving way too quickly 
for people to predict or react to. Right. And so that's why there's there seems to me, I don't know if you're seeing it amongst your listeners or amongst your coaching clients or in your webinars, Nick, or your your vast media empire. Right. If you're seeing that fear, that economic fear in people. Oh yeah. All the time. All the time people are like deer in the headlights and they don't know what to do. They know they need to do something, but they don't know what to do. And there's nobody really opening up an opportunity for them to learn. Well, and there's a reason why. It's because if you are an expert in innovation technology, you're not out there teaching it at Stanford. Or maybe, I mean, of course, some no, people- No, you're doing some it. People, you're doing it. Yeah, you're, you're innovating. You're innovating. You're creating right. companies. You know, for example, my latest company, Skykick, which is a company I invested in um, while actually I was at Quickie still, and then joined the board a couple of years later after Quickie got sold. We've grown from literally zero, three founders in a dream, seven years ago, so I think we have like 200 or 220 people now. The wow. fact that I don't know the number means you're we're growing you're, that you're fast. We're hiring people every single day. Right. And we've gone from, you know, obviously no customers when we started, five customers when we launched to over 20,000 business customers in the world, including companies like GoDaddy and Vodafone and some of the biggest, literally some of the biggest tech companies That's crazy. on the planet. It's a cloud software company. I won't go in that much detail, but it's a, a cloud software company based in Seattle. So we've been very successful using this concept of test, learn, and evolve. We always test our products and services. Any change we make, we're testing real time with customers, and we're always making. You're learning from that. They're learning from that, and then you're Evolving updating your and testing again. And it, and it's not just technology. We also test our marketing, mm. right? We test we test our processes, right? We test our sales pitches. We test right. everything to make it better. And so, if you're listening to this and you think, well. I don't need to know about innovation because I'm not in the tech business. One, wow. you are in the tech business. And even if you're not in the tech business, you can use the same exact processes that technology startups use and apply them to your business. So Naveen is doing something called the Innovation Bootcamp and the dates are April. April 30th and May 1st. May 1st in two days. At the Four Seasons in uh, Malibu, California. Yeah, near Malibu. Um, I have had the the privilege of sharing the stage with Naveen. We were both keynote speakers at uh, WarriorCon 3 this uh, past December. And like, guys, this, like, his one hour presentation was riveting. I can't imagine spending, you know, two straight days. Well, I can because I've had the privilege of also spending two straight days with this man. But just imagine having access, right, to the Silicon Valley secrets, to the $3 billion in exits that he's has. This is not some guy in a garage tinkering with, like, a piece of plastic trying to make it the Atari. Like he has been in the rooms with some of the wealthiest people in the world. His Rolodex is filled with names like Tim Ferriss and this Todd from Skykick and these men who are like trailblazing and influencing and leading an in innovation. So I'm super excited about this. I'll be attending. Um, so like, tell me just a little bit about what they can expect at the innovation bootcamp. Well, like we talked about before in the past, Innovation has only been for the elite, but I really believe everyone deserves a chance to compete. I really believe innovation should be for everybody. Um, I'll give you an example. Like this last weekend, I had a event at my house called Valhallacon. Valhalla means great hall in, in the language of the Vikings. My house is called, my house is named Valhalla. So just called it Valhallacon. And I had folks like the CEO of founder Skykick, uh, Todd, and his co-founder, Evan, I had the chief strategy officer of XPRIZE, which is probably one of the mm -hmm. most innovative organizations on the planet. If you don't know what it is, you should look it up. It's called XPRIZE. 
the chief strategy officer, Anna Lewis. I had, you know, the youngest ever CNN anchor. I, it was just Tim a, Ferriss. I, yeah, Tim was there, of course. Um, so that's typically how content gets shared um, amongst the Silicon elite. Valley, or I've been to TED multiple years, or Davos, or right. any of these things you see on the news. Like that's how the elite shares content, and that's that makes sense. But it's a very, very small club. Right. Like even though it was 20 and, of and, my friends. And hard to break into. Impossible to break into. Right. Unless you're already, unless you're there, you're not there. Right. So, but over time I realized I've gotten so much more satisfaction out of, like after the warrior speech, at least 100, maybe 200 people came up to me and like genuinely thanked me for my talk. And it really shifted me. It said, man, even though maybe I think this stuff is not obvious, but you know, very straightforward for me because I've been doing it for seven, eight years. And then obviously as an investor before, most people out of the Silicon Valley bubble or the Wall Street bubble have no idea about these techniques. Well, even even myself, I'm a successful entrepreneur. I've got you a couple are. hundred employees. We'll do thirty million this year. And like even me, I'm like a little intimidated by the tech business and Silicon Valley and raising money and blah 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 because it's just a, a, a threshold I haven't crossed, right? But just even being in the, in the same room with you and talking with you and just hearing your story gives me inspiration. It gives me gives me a path to get to apply technology to my business to take it to the next level and Absolutely. actually make a bigger impact and make it. a bigger impact. Right. If someone's listening to this and they are scared about technology and innovation, they are smart right? because you should be scared. Right. You know, in our businesses in Silicon Valley, we're always scared. We're paranoid about the next technology because yeah. we know how fast things move. Yeah. So I can only imagine how folks outside of the tech world are either you have to bury your head in the sand and that's going to hurt later. Of course. Or you're going to, keep your head up and you're going to be scared of technology because you don't know the impact of it and you don't know how to innovate. Right. So that's what the innovation bootcamp is about. It's to bring these Silicon Valley techniques to any business owner, any sales executive. It doesn't matter if you're, in the, if you think you're in the tech business or not, you are, you need the process of innovation. Yeah. So it's a two day immersive workshop, which I've done for some of the biggest, literally some of the biggest companies in the world. Like uh, I've done, did a talk for Microsoft recently. I did Deutsche Bank, Beko Satander, SCB, the biggest bank in Sweden, on and on and on. So, but instead of going to those big corporations where they love it and they pay me a ton of money, but they can't impact it because right. they're just too slow moving. But for Somebody, a small business owner, a medium business owner, a growth or, or business an, owner, or a, a decision maker inside any of a, decision a maker. business, for less than a thousand bucks, you can actually be in the room with a Silicon Valley dare I say, tightened, and and someone who has a tenure and a track record of, of not only just like tech, but actually applying that tech to make a formative difference and have a massive exit, $3 billion in exit, companies valued well over $400 million right now, sits right in front of me in this podcast studio and could be sitting right in front of you at the Innovation Bootcamp. Like, look, people... Like I make nothing off of this. I, I do this because I want to provide more value for you, the listener, for you, the person that's like a part of this next 90 nation. Like this is what I love about, you know, the brotherhood that I'm in is I get the power of association with guys like Naveen. Naveen, we didn't touch on him. We don't even have enough time, but he went to Warrior. He pushed himself to the limit during Warrior Week. He's been an advocate of the movement. And because I was joined that organization and we have now associated, we shared the stage, we've shared homes, we've broken bread, we're sharing ideas and we're collaborating. Like this is what it's all about. Like for a guy like this to do this, he does not have to do it. But why does he do it? He cares about impact. And he cares about people knowing what he knows because he knows that 
the more he gives away innovation, guess what happens? More innovation happens. Absolutely. That's good for America. Yeah. Um, so this is a one, this is a one way ticket. The innovation plane, train, whatever you want to call it is leaving the fucking station and is not coming back the end. Like you don't innovate, you don't work at the speed of now you will be left behind. So where can people find uh, more information on, on you, Naveen, uh, on Instagram? You can uh, follow me at dream Naveen, dream Naveen. Uh, you can probably see me on your Instagram as well, which people already follow. And of course, innovationbootcamp.com. We've got some information and the ability to, uh, to join. I wonder by the time that this gets released, it'll be sold out, but hopefully and maybe not. We'll, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to get this out before, uh, before that happens. So there's a limited number of seats. Um, we're not going to disclose the number of seats, but it will be an intimate room. Trust me, you will get a lot of one on one time Q and a, that type of stuff. Innovationbootcamp.com. Follow Naveen at Naveen or sorry, at, at Dream Naveen on Instagram, at Dream Naveen. He's in my stories. I'm sure you guys are already following him. Um, D-R-E-A-M-N-A-V-I-N. N-A-V-I-N. So you know what's crazy, man, is that like, and we'll wrap up with this, is that like our paths have crossed multiple times, but just in different kind of parallel universes. Like I had the opportunity to go to Princeton. I didn't. Um, when you were at Vulcan, Working, right. working for Paul, my yes. my oldest brother. That's so crazy. Was, I can't was, believe that. Was, per, was doing his, his uh, personal. Yeah, no, I've met him a bunch of times. Yeah, per, personal protection, um, obviously with Warrior. So like it's a, it's, a, it's a small, small world or is it not? But if you want to have a, a small, intimate uh, encounter with, with Naveen and he's bringing his uh, coach, my brother, my friend, Derek Keller, who's also been on this podcast, he's bringing his coach and, and Naveen and with his innovation and Derek with his accountability and coaching, they're going to come together and open up the fire hose of information on innovation. Like it's going to blow your mind. You're not going to want to miss out. You will never find something cheaper than this. And it's not cheap. It's a ton of value delivered at a great price because Naveen cares about innovation. He cares about growth and he cares about giving back and impact. So, and I care about testing and learning. So I want to learn. <laughs> He's going to apply his own, his own theory. And, um, you know, I want to get as much uh, learnings as possible, but certainly, uh, yeah, I've been told that I should so, charge more. So you, sh- you should, and you will. So what would you tell the listeners in closing? The other thing I would say is that, you know, you're, well, Nick, first of all, thank you for having me oh, on you're the welcome, show. Man. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, all your advice as well on I the next, the next chapter or not even the next chapter, another chapter, but I will say your concept of the power of association that you preach to your, to the group is so powerful. And, um, you know, for example, at the innovation bootcamp, Todd Schwartz, the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Skykick mm-hmm. is going to be there. Oh, wow. I'm not, I'm not paying him to be there. No, he wants to come to support you. He wants to support, check it out. He wants to meet some people. He wants to hang out with you. Yeah. Support innovation. And he's going to, he's going to be there. Literally he's going to pay for his own way to come there. It's and a couple of my other friends are too, who are, who are, you know, a big deal. But um, that's the power of association. I love it. And so if you want to have that same power of association, if you want to know the power of innovation, go to innovationbootcamp.com, innovationbootcamp.com. Follow Naveen at Dream Naveen. That's N-A-V-I-N on Instagram. Naveen, dude, I'm so stoked that you're here. Uh, it's been Thanks a fun, for having me. It's been a fun couple of days. Uh, thanks for dealing with the madness of my house and my two little children running around. <laughs> a pleasure. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, let's go work on this thing and I know it's going to sell out soon. Thanks, buddy. All right, everybody. Appreciate until it. Until next time, always be on the cusp of innovation. Book that one-way ticket. And as always, own the next 90. I'm out.